All right, happy Tuesday. Welcome to reInvent. I hope you are all here for the right session. It's up in gigantic letters up there. If you're in the wrong place, the doors have been closed and you don't get to leave. Uh, kidding. Not, not kidding, actually. Uh, so my name is Joshua Virgin. I am the general manager for the EC2 spot business. Uh, I work at AWS. Wanted to thank you all for coming today. And I'm here to talk to you about getting the most bang for your buck with EC2. So for those of you who are familiar with EC2, uh, this is going to be a little bit of a refresher, but I wanted to kind of go over the core EC2 purchasing options that we have. We have three of them. The first one is called on-demand, which is paying for compute capacity by the hour with no long-term commitments. This is an excellent option for spiky workloads, defining your needs, uh, just getting started with EC2. There's not a lot of complexity to it. No upfront commitments, just get started. We also have reserved instances. This is a great option for your steady state workloads. You get to make a one or a three year commitment. You receive a significant discount over the on-demand price. And this is what you're gonna be using for your committed or your baseline usage. And then lastly, I mentioned Spot earlier. Hopefully all of you have heard of it. If not, it's really good that I'm here. Uh, Spot is a market where you pay a market price that varies based on supply and demand. And you typically get a really steep discount off of on-demand, sometimes 80 or up to 90% over the on-demand price. Again, just like on-demand, you're not making any commitment up front. And this is really useful for uh, fault-tolerant, time-insensitive, or transient workloads. I'm going to go into each of these in a little bit more detail later. But I kind of wanted to talk about what we call the four pillars of performance and cost optimization. So the first is right-sizing. Second is the purchasing options. I mentioned those before. The third is about increasing elasticity. And the fourth is a practice that you're all going to put into work inside your workplaces that we call measure, monitor, and improve. As I mentioned, we're going to spend the bulk of today's presentation talking about the purchasing options, but I want to dive into the other three for a little bit because they're really important. When you think about cost optimization and accelerating your innovation, all four of these matter. So what is right-sizing? This is pretty simple, but this is selecting the cheapest instance that's going to meet your needs. So we have over 50 different instance sizes. It might be greater than that now. Seven different instance families. You're going to look at the CPU, the RAM, the storage, the networking. You're going to look at the utilization of your different workloads and you're going to pick the one that meets your needs and nothing more. If you can only use one CPU, don't pay for an instance that has 32 CPUs. If you don't need I.O. optimized or heavy storage needs, don't pick an instance that has a lot of storage or is I.O. optimized. I mean, this may seem kind of obvious, but you'd be amazed at how many people, especially moving from an on-premises environment, don't think about exactly what their application needs. This can be one of the cheapest ways with no application re-architecture to be saving money when you move to AWS. The other one is called increasing elasticity. And when I say that, a lot of people take it to mean scaling up when your application uh, has more load and you need to have more servers or more instances come online. But I want you to be thinking about scaling down as well. This is another really easy way to save money. So a simple example is looking for your dev or your test environments or your non-production instances. If they're running all the time and you're not doing anything on them, turn them off. If your developers are only there from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., you know, maybe they work a half day, you should be turning those instances off at night. And this may, again, sound really funny and really basic, but when you're in an on-premises environment, there's really no benefit to turning your instances off at night. Maybe you save a little bit from electricity and power. But when you're in the cloud, when you're on AWS, you're going to be saving significant amounts of money if you're turning your non-production instances off when you're not using them. Uh, you can look at your bill and figure out this is happening, but uh, I'll give you some more tips and tricks on how to do this in an automated fashion later. And I also mentioned scaling up. You can use services like auto-scaling uh, and other things to scale in and out of spikes. So again, instead of paying for uh, committed usage like reserved instances to handle all of your peak load, you can basically use on-demand or spot or a combination of them to scale in and out of the, uh, the changing loads and changing application needs that you have. 
So elasticity, second pillar. I mentioned the purchase options. I'll come back to them. The third is uh, measure, monitor, and improve. So this is a practice that you're going to put into place across all of the people that work for you. Hopefully, maybe you put it into practice yourself. So this is basically uh, identifying always-on non-production resources, identifying instances to downsize, using services that AWS provides like tagging, using trusted advisor. Maybe you work with a third party like Cloudian, CloudChecker, CloudHealth. These can help you identify opportunities for savings, such as taking committed workloads that are running on on-demand instances and turning them into reserved instances. And also, I assume that most of you have a boss. You want to be able to dashboard your savings and report on them and dashboard your status. So we provide tools, and I mentioned some of the third parties you can work with. This is really important, and I actually think it's one of the big benefits that the cloud has that is a little bit harder to achieve in an on-premises environment. And one of the really cool things is that because of our pricing principles, this measure, monitor, and improve thing that you're doing, this thinking about elasticity, this right-sizing, you can put this into practice right away. You haven't made a mistake that's permanent. You haven't bought hardware that you're going to have to have sit there for three years or five years being idle. You don't have to make an upfront investment. You can pay as you go. I mentioned on-demand. I mentioned spot. As you discover applications that are running on AWS all the time, you can pay less by buying reserved instances. And then one of the coolest things that I think is really awesome and why I love being part of AWS is that you pay less when we grow. We have passed on savings from scale that we have achieved due to people like yourself using AWS in the form of over 50 price reductions since 2006. So these principles mean that you are immediately able to take advantage of all of the opportunities for cost optimization that you find. The good news is you don't have to take my word for it. So I, I love customer quotes like this. This is a case study from a few years back. It's a company called Novartis. They're based in Switzerland. They're a big healthcare and research company. So they had a uh, target molecule that they wanted to screen uh, 10,000 compounds against to you know, determine if they'd kind of found a cure for cancer or something that would improve it, a therapy. So they had an existing on-premises environment that was full. It was busy doing other things. This screening experiment was just an experiment. The ROI is uncertain. They don't know if it's going to work, if it's going to find anything that's valuable. So they're not going to simply shut off all of the production workloads. So their team identified that in order to kind of complete this computational chemistry, it would take 50,000 cores and a $40 million investment to build essentially a second data center just to run this experiment. Now, obviously, what happened is somebody said, we're not going to spend $40 million on an uncertain experiment. So they came to AWS, and what they ended up doing is using spot instances. They used 10,000 spot instances, actually representing 87,000 cores, so more than 50. And they completed that 39 years of computational chemistry in nine hours for $4,200. 4,232, I think, is the precise number. Uh, again, not a math expert. 40 million is big, 4,200 small, right? Uh, it, like, these numbers seem like crazy, but it's really the power of the cloud. And the amazing thing about it is they spun up this huge data center in the cloud using all these spot instances. They spun it down a few weeks later, and they just kind of walked away, right? You know, I mean, of course, I'd love everybody to go all in on AWS, but not all of you are ready to make that journey. If you are, that's great. But if not, we provide options where you can spin up, like, unheard of size, essentially second data centers, bigger than your existing on-premises data center, get your work done, get it done faster than you could have in your on-premises environment, get the results faster, and then kind of move on with your life. You're not stuck with your infrastructure being the bottleneck. So, I mean, I, I kind of think of this as time to results. Ultimately, you're probably not in the business of building infrastructure. You're in the business of doing science or finance or building mobile games, uh, building a website, an e-commerce site. You want to get results to your users faster. You want to determine if your experiments are going to be valuable. And that's really kind of what we're talking about here, which is this is acceleration of preclinical R&D. So I, I just love these stories. All right, on to the meat of our discussion. Three purchasing models, on-demand, reserved, and spot. I mentioned on-demand, super low-cost and flexible. 
You can spin up one instance. You can spin up 10 instances. You can spin up as many as you like. This is great for uh, development and test, especially if you're learning on AWS. There's really no complexity to getting started here. You can let one user inside your environment get started. Or if you have an application that is uh, short-term, it runs for a time-limited duration, if it's spiky, if it's unpredictable, and if it's not fault-tolerant, you're going to want to be using on-demand. So if you have an application that can't tolerate an interruption, uh, you know, th this is kind of the purchasing model you should be thinking about. I'm only going to spend one slide on this, and that's not because on-demand isn't important. It's because there's not a lot of complexity. The second purchasing model is reserved instances. So our standard RIs have been around a long time. Uh, many of you are familiar with them. These are excellent for steady-state workloads. That is a workload running 24 hours a day, seven days a week, most of the year. It doesn't even have to run that long for this to be cost-effective, but you're not going to be using it for things that spike up and down uh, 10,000 instances to one instance on a daily basis. The benefit of reserved instances is that you're making a commitment to us and we're giving you a significant discount over the on-demand price in exchange for that commitment. Now, one of the things we've heard from customers over the years is that they like this discount. They don't mind the commitment, they like the discount, but really they'd like a little bit more flexibility in their RIs. So this past September, just a couple of months ago, we made the capacity reservation feature uh, essentially optional by introducing what we call the regional benefit to standard RIs. So all this means is that if you buy an RI and you don't check the little box that says tie this to an availability zone, your RI discount applies to those instances you selected anywhere in the region that you're operating. Now, if you have uh, selected the capacity reservation or you've tied your RI to a specific availability zone, it continues to work exactly as it did before. So we aren't taking anything away. We're kind of giving you this added layer of flexibility. So this is what it looks like in table form. Uh, essentially, this is what a standard RI is. You can make, uh, there's three different kind of payment options, no upfront, partial upfront, all upfront. And there's two different levels of commitment, one year and three year. The longer your commitment and the more you pay upfront, the larger your savings is on demand, up to 75% off, which of course is a pretty big deal. Uh, there are some aspects of them that are modifiable. Uh, I've kind of listed them here. You can use the console, you can use the API. You're not going to be modifying these on a daily basis in most cases. Uh, as I mentioned, the savings before and the capacity reservation. And then w there, there are some limitations with RIs, right? One is that you can't change instance families. So what does that mean? So when AWS started, we had essentially three instance types. You can see them here in this little two set 2007 EC2 kind of chart uh, that's probably already out of date. Now we have seven instance families and over 50 different instance types. This kind of changes every day, maybe not every day, uh, pretty often. Uh, this is kind of a bewildering array of choices, and we actually like to think this gives people lots of flexibility, lots of benefits. We keep introducing new instance types and sizes so you can take advantage of advances in CPU, faster disk, larger memory, you know, whatever it is that your application needs. So people have said, this is really great. You know, I love that you guys keep releasing all these new innovations in terms of hardware, but I feel kind of locked in with my RI. So could I, could I get that discount but take advantage of new instance types and families? Huh. Answer is yes. So we introduced in September, when we introduced the regional benefits, something that we call the convertible RI. So it's a new type of reserved instance that can be exchanged many times, or only once, or never, during the three-year commitment for a reserved instance of equal or greater value. So what this gives you the ability to do is you could convert to a new instance family over this three-year commitment. You could move from an R3 to a C3 to a T2 to an M4 to a new instance type that we haven't announced yet when it comes out. You can take advantage of new instance pricing. For example, if we make you know, discounts and reduction of the rates, you can actually switch the OS from Windows to Linux to back. Uh, you can actually change even your commitment in terms of partial upfront or no upfront. And again, you can leverage that regional benefit I mentioned or tie it to a specific AZ and continue to get the capacity commitment. So these are what they look like compared to each other. They're very similar, a couple of key differences. One is that convertible RIs require a three-year commitment. 
The second is that, uh, as I mentioned, they're significantly more flexible. You can change instance families, operating systems. You can move from dedicated to standard tenancy and back. And then the savings are slightly different, right? You're uh, getting up to a 45% savings over this three-year period in exchange for that flexibility. So we're very excited by the changes in our eyes and the additional flexibility. Hopefully these are scratching some of the itches that you guys have had over the years. So now on to the subject uh, nearest and dearest to my heart, as far as AWS goes, which is Spot. So Spot, uh, Spot instances have been around since, I think, 2008. They are great for applications that are time or instance flexible. Maybe you have an opportunistic workload that you wouldn't otherwise run if it weren't really inexpensive to do so. Or maybe you're running an experiment, like one of those ones I mentioned earlier. You could be working at Fermilab or Brookhaven, analyzing data from the Large Hadron Collider. Maybe you're out of space on your existing on-premises data center and you need to burst, but you don't want to make a large commitment. As I mentioned, maybe you have really urgent computing needs for a large amount of compute capacity. Uh, because spot instances can be reclaimed by AWS, we actually allow people to burst significantly larger uh, than with the other purchasing models. And again, there's no commitment. So what does that look like? 90% savings. Uh, you can save up to 90% off of the on-demand price. Again, this is with no commitment, unlike the RIs, which have a one- or a three-year commitment. We provide free tools like Spot Fleet. This is something you can use to make uh, use of all the different kinds of instances we have out there and maintain the size of your fleet or grow it or shrink it, depending on your needs as the Spot instances come and go. If you're just getting started with Spot or you have a short-term duration-limited workload that's between one and six hours, you can request what we call a Spot Block. So that's an instance where you say, I need it for an hour or I need it for six hours. And if we have one available, uh, it's designed to run continuously for that period of time. And again, as I mentioned, there's absolutely no commitment level. So Spot requires a little bit more explanation than the other two purchasing models. It's actually relatively simple. So it's a market where the price of compute changes based on supply and demand. Simply put, Spot instances are spare on-demand instances. There's a market price and a bid price. And people get really tripped up around this concept. Hopefully this slide will clear it up for you. So if you take away nothing else from this presentation, uh, make it be this slide. See this little arrow here? This is from our price history graph. It's available on our website. It's also available from the API. This is the, uh, the arrow points to the market price. This is what you're going to pay. So in this instance, uh, in this case here in, avail in this availability zone, you're getting an 87% discount right now off of the on-demand price, no matter what you bid. So what do I mean by bidding? Bidding is essentially the maximum amount you're willing to pay. So let's say you bid 25% of the on-demand price. You can see this line up here. What that means is that any time the market price exceeded 25% of the on-demand price, we give you a two-minute notification, time to wrap up your work, and then the instance, uh, your instance is interrupted and we essentially reclaim it. So if you were bidding 25% of the on-demand price, you saved 86% uh, off, so basically less than 20 cents per hour over this entire one-week period in this example. So that's a pretty big savings, right? You're only paying 14% of the on-demand price. Unfortunately, you were interrupted three or four times. That's every time the green line kind of crossed the uh, black line here. So another strategy you could use is say, I'm going to bid 50% of the on-demand price. If you bid 50% of the on-demand price, you were only interrupted once. That's that kind of spike up here. You still saved 85%. That's a 1% difference, right? Because the, you're only paying the market price. So taking it one step further, if you had bid 75% of the on-demand price for this kind of instance, for an entire week, you were not interrupted. You still saved 85% over the course of that week, and you didn't have to do any work. So there, there may be some people in the audience, especially if you're very familiar with Spot. I've heard stories of people you know, getting PhD grad students to create bidding strategies, and I want to I discourage that. Not that I don't like PhD grad students, but uh, come work for me. Uh, no, you really don't need to do anything. If you can bid 75 or 100% of the on-demand price, you're never going to pay more than that. You're typically going to save 80 to 90%. You're going to face the fewest interruptions, and you're not going to be doing any work trying to figure spot out. So don't wrap yourself around the axle about bidding and market prices. Just bid the on-demand price. Focus on your application.
So those are the three purchasing models. Many people then say, okay, well, which one is right for me? That's kind of, I, I like to say that's the wrong way to ask the question. It's like picking one food and then surviving on it for the rest of your life. So you have to have a balanced meal. In case you're wondering kind of a, which purchasing model is which food, whichever one your favorite is, that's spot. Uh, even if it's not on here, that's also spot. So completely seriously, you're going to be using a combination of all three. So you're going to use reserved instances for your steady state workloads. I mentioned this earlier. You can save up to 75%. There's no orchestration overhead. You really have no reason not to be using this once you're somewhere along your AWS journey. You can set up multiple auto-scaling groups, as an example, to use spot, to use on-demand. You can scale up and down using spot, on-demand, or a combination of both. And I'm going to go into some examples that do this. You might not look exactly like this. You might look more heavy on the reserved instance side or less heavy, more heavy on spot. You might not be using very much spot, and I'll kind of go into that as well. But this is really what you should be thinking about when you're thinking about EC2. You're unlikely to be 100% reserved instances or 100% on-demand or 100% spot. I rarely see that even with customers who are only using AWS a little. So let me give you an example of this. How might this actually work for a hypothetical web application? So this is a three-tier web app. And you, know, you can substitute in your mind any similar three-tier application. Up here in the front, we have uh, you know, incoming HTTP requests that are routed through a load balancer, in this case, Amazon's ELB, Elastic Load Balancer. I then have uh, multiple uh, auto-scaling groups, and I'm using multiple availability zones. These are where my instances are running. That's that uh, A and B thing you see there. Then I have a second tier with an application tier. Maybe that's a little more stateful. Maybe it's running a cache layer to persist results for better performance. And then on the back end, I have some kind of redundant data store, maybe Amazon RDS. doesn't have to be these things. So first, a little bit. I mentioned this earlier. Uh, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to cost optimize across these three tiers? The most important thing to start with is tagging. So tagging is going to help you explain your costs. It's going to help you allocate charges to the right team or the right environment. And it's going to identify opportunities for you to save money. Uh, this is basically metadata. Tagging is great. And just for you guys, special deal today, I'm going to give you 10 tags for free on every EC2 instance. Uh, for those not laughing, they're, they're always free. And you always get 10. Uh, that would be a really good deal, though. Right, so tagging is really simple. These are key value pairs. You can do whatever you want with them. Uh, you can identify who launched the instance. You can say this is part of the test environment, the dev environment, the staging environment, the prod environment. You can say this is part of my application tier, my web site. This is part of my database tier. You know, this basically lets you do reporting and dashboarding later. So tagging is super key. It's not very hard to do. Most of the services that Amazon provides uh, make it easy to use tags when you kind of launch your instances. So how does this look? I mentioned the three tiers. The tier in the front was the web tier. I'm assuming you guys are architecting uh, intelligently. So this is a well-designed application. So the web tier is entirely stateless, which this means you have a highly available deployment where you're treating your EC2 instances as cattle, not pets. That means they can kind of come and go, and it doesn't interfere with your user's experience. So that enables both a fast and powerful response to demand. When demand spikes, you can launch a whole bunch of new instances. When the demand falls off, you can kind of pull them away. Also, if you are stateless and you're responding to these requests in very short periods of time, right? Maybe your entire request is 100 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds, one second, two seconds. Remember when I mentioned this earlier, we give you two minutes to wrap up on spot? You can make very heavy use of spot instances for stateless applications, or at least a portion of it. So very simply, what you have here, I have a base layer of instances that I'm running on reserved instances. If I always need at least 100, the simplest thing for me to do to make sure that I always have 100 instances is to buy them and kind of commit to AWS using reserved instances. There's no reason to kind of pay the on-demand price if you're going to be running these all the time. And then I have these spikes during the day. And again, I'm a stateless application. I'm going to make very heavy use of spot to do this. I can, in fact, take advantage of the fact that there are 80 to 90% savings on spot instances. 
And I can over-provision. I know the economics of this might seem weird, but if you only needed an extra 200 instances, you could provision 250 spot instances and still be saving the equivalent of 60 to 70% off the on-demand price. And then if you lose a few of those instances because of spot terminations, your users don't even notice. In addition, because you're responding to requests in 200, 300 milliseconds, by the time you get the notification, you can drain those connections, detach from the ELB that I mentioned, launch a new instance, and basically none of your customers even notice that the instance went away. Maybe I have a final peak where I scale up some on-demand instances. This is a pattern that we actually see a lot. It's really powerful. But let's take a look at the application tier. Maybe this application tier, as I mentioned, is a cache. So it's scalable, it kind of goes up and down, but it's stateful. That is, I need it to run around. Interruptions are kind of painful, and they take away the benefit of this to the web tier. So here, very similar to the last graph, I'm running a base of RIs. Again, if I always need 300 instances, I'm going to be running them in RIs. And then, because my application tier is stateful, to handle most of the peaks, I'm going to be running on-demand instances. I'm going to use auto-scaling, and I'm going to scale up on whatever metric I think is important, whether it's incoming CPU load or queue depth or something like that. But there's still an opportunity to take advantage of spot. Maybe I have two short-term peaks because my application is heavily used on people's morning commute and evening commute. If you know how long those peaks are, you can scale up for those very small additional peaks using spot blocks, which again, as I mentioned, run from one to six hours depending on what you specify. Now let's look at the back end or the database tier. So I am the spot guy, but I would be remiss to tell you that you do not run your databases on spot. If you do, I will hunt you down. Uh, I actually just won't answer your ticket when you complain. Uh, totally seriously. You run your databases regardless of the variety of load on reserved instances. You don't want your database to be kind of crashing in the middle of the day. You're not going to be running it on an on-demand instance because you're not turning it off, right? So you're running it on a reserved instance. But one of the cool things about the cloud is this tiny little spike up here in the corner. We see a lot of people with databases not struggling to handle the uh, transaction processing, but struggling to handle you know, reporting aggregation on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. So one of the cool things about the cloud, you could spin up an on-demand instance, snapshot your database over, run your reports for a couple of hours, and then simply turn that database off. You could also do this using spot instances. And one of the cool things about this is we see people taking reports that normally run maybe once a week, once a month, because they're kind of painful to run. They turn them into daily operational intelligence. So I just think this is one of the cool things that you might not be thinking about that you can take advantage of now that you're moving to AWS. So this is a summary across all three of those tiers. If you're following my example here, you're going to end up using 76% you know, reserved instances. Your numbers may not look exactly like this. 13% uh, of your total usage will be spot, and 11% is on demand. So again, I don't want you to focus specifically on these numbers. What I want you to think about here is that because I have a stateless front end, and because I know what my load is consistently, I'm able to take advantage of cost optimization, both on the spot side and the reserved instance side, uh, very easily. And lastly, this is this quote from uh, Werner, our CTO, which is, there might be an opportunity for you to eliminate servers entirely. Think about the business that you're in. Maybe you're not in the business of managing servers. Should you be in the business of managing queues? Maybe you can use SQS. Uh, maybe you can use Lambda to move some of your functions kind of off of servers and, and off of cron. So no server is easier to manage than no server. I like that quote. You do not have to take my word for it. This is another great example uh, from Ubisoft, which is a gaming company. So when they were moving into mobile and social games, they needed the ability to move quickly, to scale, to uh, really high peaks, but also to handle the fact that gaming is a hit-driven business. So what that means is that you don't know, although you hope, that every game you're building is going to be a success. If you knew exactly what kind of success it was going to be and how big it was going to be, you could confidently buy infrastructure for it. But gaming hits can kind of uh, be hit or miss. 
and you don't know how long that's going to last. So with AWS, they were able to launch 10 social games in 18 months. Ubisoft is not in the infrastructure business. They are in the gaming business. Actually, prior to working at Amazon, I spent four years at Zynga, and I can tell you this story is very true. I was at Zynga when we moved from AWS to our own internal cloud, thinking that uh, this wouldn't be that hard. How hard could it be? And now, actually, Zynga's here, and a bunch of them have told their story about how they've moved entirely back onto AWS. And what that's a reflection of is that you have to think about the core business that you're in and what you want to be innovative on. So the reason that's important is another quote. It's not listed up here, but it's one of my favorite quotes from Andy Jassy, who's our CEO, and hopefully you guys will hear his keynote tomorrow. He's fond of saying this, which is that invention requires two things. One is the ability to try lots of experiments, and then the second is not having to live with the collateral damage of failed experiments. And that's kind of at the core of what I've been talking about here. If you have to buy the infrastructure in advance for everything that you're doing, it kind of prevents you from thinking really big and from trying lots of experiments because you have to live with the collateral damage of that. So this is Ubisoft putting that into practice. Let me use another example here. This is a grid processing application. So grid covers a really wide variety of applications. So you can think of this as batch computing, uh, Hadoop, Spark, anything where you're, you're basically uh, processing applications in a framework like this. So you're going to have these files or inputs on the front end. Maybe you're storing them in S3 in an object store. Maybe you're using a file system such as Amazon's EFS or Lustre. Then you have a grid of computers, in this case EC2 instances, that are processing through those files and either combing them for results or they're doing some analysis. And then you kind of put them together on the back end and maybe you kind of spit them back out to S3. Again, I don't want you to get hung up on exactly how this looks, but there's a use pattern here that's really broadly applicable. Oop. Sorry there. So this is how it looked in the, the old world. If you were in an on-premises environment and you had these grid computing jobs, if you wanted to serve all of them, this is what you would do. People would tell you how much computing they need. You would go procure all of that capacity in advance. As you can see here, these big blue vertical lines. You'd deploy all those servers, and then you'd be able to serve all the incoming needs. As you can see, having to buy those servers in advance, and because your amount of usage varies on a daily or weekly basis, you're going to have a lot of unused IT resources. You could do this. I've actually never seen this happen in 20 years of working in IT. I've seen this. So people manage their finances very closely. So what that means is they're only going to procure as much capacity as they're sure they can use to a very high degree of utilization. So what that means is each time you procure capacity, you're not procuring to your peak. You're procuring to what you can determine that the ROI is positive for. So that means all of those previous high peaks that people might need for an experiment or doing something for a short-term basis, you just shave those off. Now, this might sound good financially, but there's an actual business impact to that, right? You're delaying somebody's project, which doesn't sound very good to me, especially if it's my project. But you could do this in the cloud. So if this was the model you're following, and you want to keep things really simple, and I've actually seen this happen, you can simply buy three-year reserved instances. You can save 75% off the on-demand price. You can make your purchases in big blocks every time you anticipate needing new uh, chunks of compute. I don't really have that much problem with this. But here's what happens. Again, I mentioned this. If you are central IT, you are trying to get this orange line, which is your grid utilization, as close to 100% as you possibly can. So every time you see a big dip, like you see here on the right, that represents wasted computing resources. If the line stays down around 20% most of the time, your bosses are going to come to you and say, why did we buy so much extra compute? Why is utilization always at 20%? Why can't you get it to be 100%? The answer is the conflicting goals of the business and central IT. So here, when that blue line is at 100%, central IT is super happy. But most of the time that it's at 100% in your grid, you have jobs sitting in a queue. 
You might have people waiting for a day, a week, a month. People might just be giving up. Maybe their job takes a week long, and it could take a day, and they can't get their work done. So you see the kind of orange line here. Central IT is kind of humming along, thinking everything is great. But there are periods where there are 1,200 jobs sitting in the queue. And then that one moment where central IT is saying, what happened? Why are we not using all of our compute? That just happens to be when maybe there isn't work to be done or all the work has been plowed through. So what this ends up looking like is that innovation is being throttled by the amount of IT resources. So what you want is a model that can look something like this. You want to be able to accelerate projects by getting access to higher capacity when you need it. You can enable new demands for computing. You can get shorter wait times, greater agility, faster innovation. These things all sound great. But obviously, you still don't want to be spending too much money and having lots of idle compute resources. So this is the new way in the cloud. This is with AWS. So you're no longer throttling innovation through IT. Your base usage is covered by our eyes. You can still see that step function slowly over time. You're using that for the profitable, steady state parts of the business. You're using on-demand for your workloads that are not fault tolerant, that are spiky, that have been sitting in the queue. And then if you have those users that are crying out to get their needs met, but you don't know what the ROI is, you're giving them spot instances. You see these huge spikes here? You can enable hundreds of additional instances. You can double the size of your footprint for very inexpensive amounts. And one of the funny things that we encounter is that people say, my, my job isn't fault tolerant. I can't handle interruption. But you would be surprised how high the ROI is for an engineer to get access to a 10,000 core data center for 100 bucks an hour. You'd also be surprised at how much you can convince people to handle interruptions. If they're willing to wait a month to get a job done, it doesn't really matter if it's interrupted once or twice over the course of a week in getting done. They still got their work three weeks faster. You could even take it one step further and incorporate spot blocks for some of those short-term workloads that I mentioned before. So again, this is this way that you're not throttling people anymore. You're giving them access to IT when they need it, and you're doing so in a cost-effective fashion. So I love this quote. This is from Jeff Smith, who's the CEO of Suncorp, which is a diversified, multi-billion-dollar Australian financial services firm. So they're running a, a, a complex IT environment, supporting 14 brands and four lines of businesses in five countries. And what I love about this quote is that it speaks to the cloud's flexibility in enabling freedom of thought. So this transforms it into action. So if you're leveraging the cloud effectively, you're no longer constrained by your infrastructure investments. You don't need to question your ability to solve the hardest problems. So when using the cloud effectively, you're only constrained by your thought. So you're taking your most talented people, you're de-bottlenecking them, you're setting them free. I love that. So how does this look? I think there's a lot of different people in this room coming from different industries. I've given a couple of use case patterns, kind of a web application, uh, and then also uh, the grid processing. These are some common patterns we see in terms of how the purchasing models fit across the industries. Let's say you're a web scale company. Maybe you're in ad tech. And I use this as an example. A lot of ad tech companies participate in real-time bidding. So in real-time bidding, they're buying and selling ads per impression on the internet. So a little bit of background. This is a transaction where a user visits a website. It triggers a bid request that can include bits of data. The ad hits an exchange where multiple advertisers submit bids in real time. And then people, it goes to the highest bidder. This whole process happens in 100 milliseconds. So since this happens in 100 milliseconds, you can make really heavy use of spot and not care about the instance uh, interruptions. Some of our customers are doing this transaction processing 50 billion times a day. Also, advertising is a lower margin business, especially these days. So we see a lot of really heavy use of spot and then some use of on demand. And again, there's a really highly spiky use pattern. So it makes much more sense to be using spot than buying reserved instances and having them sit idle. On the other hand, we might see the exact opposite from what we would call an enterprise software as a service company. 
So maybe you built your application five or ten years ago. Maybe it's not a three-tier application. Maybe it's entirely stateful, or it deploys itself all on one server. So what we see a lot of in that case is every time you get a customer, maybe you're buying another RI and you're deploying the entire stack in one place. So that gives you a lot of control as a customer. That gives you control over your costs. You can only deploy things when you get new customers and no orchestration overhead. And also, it's not required that you re-architect your application for the cloud. As you can see here, uh, they're using a small amount of on-demand. Maybe that's for a proof of concept with a new customer or if they're re-architecting their application over time to kind of be more cloud-friendly. And then very much in the, in the upper right-hand corner, there's a tiny bit of spot. Maybe they're starting to do some analytics or think about other ways they can use the cloud. Here are two other examples. One is what I would call an onboarding enterprise. This is somebody who's moving to the cloud. So they're going to be using uh, RIs for the base profitable applications. Maybe they have a steady state workload. Maybe it's enterprise IT, uh, such as Exchange or SAP or a CRM application. And then you have some developer sitting in the corner working on a new application. So they start using some on-demand instances. They launch this new application to their customers, and it starts getting more traction. You can see the blue line starts climbing, getting bigger and bigger. During this point, you haven't made a commitment. But if this application takes off, what somebody in finance is going to do is wake up someday and say, hey, we're spending a lot of money on on-demand. And someone says, yeah, that's great. I just released this really cool application, and 10 million people are using it. Then you're going to make a big RI purchase kind of here at the end. So I think that's a really flexible pattern, and that's a very common one we see as people move uh, all in on AWS as it might look something like this. I mentioned a specific example of enterprises, which was a gaming company. So again, a gaming company might have a base of RIs to run their back-end services. Maybe they've got a stable amount of customers on their most popular games, or they're running enterprise IT applications. Then they might launch a new game, or they might launch a sale within an existing game or an expansion pack. And again, as I mentioned, gaming is a hit-driven business. You don't know how much of a peak you're going to get. How many new users are you going to get? How many returning users? How long is that peak going to last? But maybe your application is stateful. That is, if your gaming customer comes and their session is interrupted, they have a really negative experience. So they're using a heavy amount of on-demand. And as you can see, there's this huge spike when they launch maybe an expansion pack to an existing game. They spike up using on-demand. Maybe they're using a service like auto-scaling. Then it just kind of comes right back down and you haven't committed to a higher level of RI usage during that entire time. Another example that looks very different than these is scientific research, and I mentioned this earlier. This graph can be a little bit misleading, but what you're seeing here is that you can have an example like Brookhaven or Fermilabs where they're using a certain amount, like maybe a small amount, let's say 1,000 cores of AWS on average. Maybe they're all running on RIs. Maybe they've got an existing data center or five data centers, and they're not ready to kind of wind down those investments. So what happens is you see this base of RIs chugging along for a year, and then somebody gets a crazy idea, as scientists often do, and they show up and they spin up a 100,000 core spot instance cluster. Then they spin it down a week later. What you get is a graph that looks exactly like this. I think that's really cool, right? You know, I can't imagine a world, you know, 10, 15 years ago where you could just show up and ask somebody to spin up a data center for a week that's 10 times the size of your existing data center footprint and do so really cost effectively. If you look at this kind of across like a generic technology company, what you might see is something that looks a lot like this. I've mentioned it a few times. You're going to have a base of RIs running your enterprise IT applications, your databases, your big monolithic applications. You're going to be using on-demand for your stateful uh, app tier and so forth. And then you're going to be using Spot for big data analytics, for experiments, for new businesses, for your dev test workloads. If you're running Jenkins, we actually have a Spot Fleet plugin that's almost no lines of code, and you could be saving 90% on your dev test instances. So I've given you, I think, six examples here that make it look like in every industry there's kind of one use case pattern. So hopefully I've covered a fair amount of you. But actually, what we see is something that looks more like this. Maybe a lot of you are from one company, but you serve a specific function. 
So this is another thing that we actually see quite a bit of as people move more heavily into AWS. If all of your workloads are on AWS, it's going to look something like this. Your data science team, if you're making heavy use of EMR, Hadoop, Spark, grid processing, that is perfectly suited for spot. You're going to make very heavy use of that. Some of these things, like the core nodes on EMR, are going to be running on on-demand or reserved instances. But data science can be highly spiky. Maybe you're training a machine learning or a deep learning model, doing some AI experimentation. You need access to the maximum amount of compute. Maybe you have no idea what the value is going to be. We see a lot of spot usage in that area. I mentioned this before, a new app development. This is a developer. When I say sitting in a corner, that sounds bad. But I mean, like, off by themselves. Uh, maybe he or she has kind of come up with a great idea. And the cool thing in the cloud is they don't have to go ask somebody to spin up a bunch of servers for them. If you've given them these, the access to this and told them to use tagging, they can go ahead and fire up an on-demand um, on instance. And then as their application becomes better developed, gets launched to the market, if it's unsuccessful, you haven't made a huge commitment. If it is successful and you see this huge spike, I mean, I hope you would be happy. The next thing you can do is kind of make an RI purchase and kind of cut your cost down. But you can do that to cover the instances that are already running. So it's kind of cool that you really don't have to plan in advance. And the last thing I mentioned uh, was test and development, which is if you're running a test environment or a non-production environment, especially if it doesn't have to be up 24 hours a day or if the size of the test and the development you're doing varies, you can also make very heavy use of spot. We have one customer, uh, Lyft, ride-sharing company, and they save $15,000 a month using four lines of code by moving their continuous integration environment, which uses Jenkins and Docker, over to Spot. So, I mean, $15,000 a month, four lines of code. That ROI is pretty good. So let me kind of go back and recap this for you. There are, there are four pillars of optimization. Right-sizing, right? The cheapest way to save money is to not pay for resources you don't use. I am continually amazed, uh, and I guess I shouldn't be. I started out my career in IT and in systems engineering. Of people don't know how much CPU or RAM or disk their application is using, so they tend to over-provision. Good news, again, this is okay. You're not making huge commitments if it's an on-demand instance. Try a smaller instance out. See if your application works. Figure that out. Encourage people to do that. Increasing elasticity. So that means both scaling up only when you need it, but also turning things off. Right? Nothing is cheaper than not having something running. Measure, monitor, and improve. So again, this isn't the one-time thing. This is a practice you're going to put into place. I mentioned it earlier in terms of right-sizing. That can actually be a continual activity where you're looking at how your application works, how it runs. Does it scale with CPU? Could you kind of architect it in a more resource, a less resource-intensive way? Figure that out. Use tags. So tagging, tagging, tagging. I mentioned this. Again, tags are still free, uh, 10 of them per instance. The customers that seem to do the best with optimization make the best use of tags. It's a really simple way, right? It's just some metadata. They're very flexible. And services, like I mentioned, like Trusted Advisor from AWS or third-party services from Cloudian, CloudChecker, CloudHealth, and others, they also make heavy use of tags, right? This is how you're going to identify opportunities that you're not going to find yourself. You don't have to assign a team of people to monitor your environment. You can use tags to kind of help you do that. There are these three core purchasing options, right? You're going to want to have a balanced meal. You're unlikely to use 100% spot, 100% reserved instances, 100% on demand. Typically, when people come to us and say, I need to cost optimize, I need to performance optimize, we kind of point them back to this. And we say, have you looked at spot? That Lyft example I gave earlier, since he's not in the audience, I can tell this joke. Uh, is a friend of mine, and he came to the office and said, we're spending too much on AWS. And I said, well, you know, Spot, this is a great thing. Save 90%. And he's like, really? Where have you been hiding this from me? And I'm like, I, nowhere, right? But we release so much stuff that people kind of forget we have these things already in place. So if you're not looking at Spot, if you're not looking at reserved instances, you really should be. And the last is kind of architecting your workloads with performance and cost in mind. So again, some of this is, it's not required to move to the cloud, but the longer you stay on it, and I think there's a lot of sessions here over the next couple of days where people talk about this more in depth. If you're moving from a monolithic to a service-oriented architecture, or you're moving from an on-premises environment with a fixed 
kind of data center size to the cloud where it's highly elastic, over time you're going to be wanting to invest in architecting with performance and cost in mind. So that brings me to my, my summary. And I fully believe this, which is AWS is more cost effective in both the short term and the long term than on-premises environments. So you're going to be leveraging these three purchasing models. And you're not doing that just because I'm talking to you here today and I'm such a great speaker. You're doing that because you get the freedom to build unfettered, right? Your IT infrastructure and costs and purchasing model and the length of time it takes are no longer the bottlenecks. As an example from my own past, I actually worked at Amazon for over three years back in the 90s when AWS wasn't even a twinkle in anybody's eye. And one of the things I remember the most is we started out as just a bookstore. This is not a new story. When we went to move from books to music and then later to add video, when we went from one country only being available in the United States to being available in the UK and in Germany, it took weeks and months and tens or I don't even remember, hundreds of millions of dollars in kind of IT infrastructure planning to get the environments in place. That's all a thing of the past, right? You can expand to multiple countries using our very broad footprint. You can scale up and down as quickly as you can think of new business ideas and write the software to do so. You're going to gain the freedom to get real value from your data. Again, you're probably not in the business of just spinning up infrastructure for its own sake. You want to get results. Maybe you're a scientist. Maybe your customers just want to get results faster from you, right? There was a study that Amazon did a while back that every one second delay on their website cost them something like $1.6 billion a year in revenue. So if you're spinning up a lot more instances and you're using Spot to do so, you're getting results to your customers faster. And the last is this freedom to say yes. Nobody likes to say no. I think even uh, the central IT examples I gave earlier, the reason they say no is kind of cost. Hopefully with AWS and by leveraging all these purchasing models, you're thinking about these freedoms that you're giving to yourself and that you're giving to your users and to your customers. So with that in mind, I wanted to sincerely thank everybody for coming here today and for coming to reInvent and close on a note about one of our core leadership principles at Amazon, which is customer obsession. We start from the customer's needs and work backwards. So you've been listening to me for the last 45, 50 minutes or so, and maybe other people. But really, one of the best things for me about reInvent is hearing from all of you. So in closing, I wanted to say, please remember to fill out your evaluations. Thank you again for coming, and I'll be available for questions for the next five minutes. Thank you.